We're in a new series, uh, had the privilege of starting one um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, just really probing the, the, the tough, deep questions of faith. Um, and and this, the, the title of our, of our series is, Can I Ask That? And very much we want to say yes. You know, that's what I love about our grow groups. I've heard some really great things. Because one of the things that we try to say in our grow groups is, hey, this is a safe place. You know, if you're struggling, if you're having a time where you don't understand this, or you, you really are not grasping that, or, or maybe there's just something that's happened in your life that's a lot bigger than you, then here we are. And arms are wide open. And we want to walk with you and talk with you, cry with you, laugh with you, as Jesus did with us. That's the difference between our truth, our God, than any other God. Lowercase g. And I want to say that. I don't mean to be offensive, but that's the truth. We have the ultimate high God that came down and walked amongst us. Who, who suffered with us. And, and, and what I love is that he doesn't just do that to identify. He, do, he does that so that he can identify, but also pick us up. Put our arm around us and walk with us through our suffering through our questions, through our doubt, through our struggles. And so with this series, I've had a lot of really good conversations. I hope you guys have had too, some good conversations. And so we're here for you in this and you're just going through this. And there is no question that's too tough or too big that God can't help you with. And so that's what we're, we're seeing, some good stuff through that. One of the key things that I've seen in this is that we must remember as we approach any of these tough questions, we must approach humbly. That's a key. See, if if you're taking notes, humility is the key position of the Christian. It has to be our key position. Because it was Jesus' key position. Jesus modeled humility. I mean, he came in, as I said before, as, as a helpless baby who lived a life of pain. I mean, he was an exile. He, his parents, before he could even talk, had to grab him and take him and rush to Egypt and live in a foreign land for a couple of years because there was a wholesale slaughter of little boys. I mean, you talk about tough. He went through it, even before he could even talk. Living in poverty, as Philip once said, what good could come out of Galilee? I mean, that's the ghetto, man. <laughs> that place is... It's, it's Galilee. It smells like fish, and it's horrible. And yet Jesus grew up there. He was the epitome of humble. He knew what it truly was to have deep grief as he lived in a hard, broken world. And that's what Paul really points out in the book of Philippians, why it's one of my favorite passages in Philippians 3. That Jesus modeled what it meant to be a servant a human being, in Philippians 2 and 3, he just really goes through this. He gladly humbled himself so that we might have an answer to the deepest question that we're going to probe today. But that deep question that we ask is, who, who am I? Who am I? Adversely, if we were to look at that, just break it down a little more, is do, do I have a purpose? What is my purpose? And, and what I love is Jesus, he doesn't just stand on high, glowing, and 
kind of, you know, six feet off the ground and, and give us some principle or, or some law. No, he, he hangs from a cross, bloody, broken, and says the answer to who you are is you're worth it. You're worth it. You see, you're not worthy. I'm worthy, Jesus says, as he is on the cross. That's why he did it for us. But he says, you're worth it. You're worth my sacrifice. You have an eternal purpose. See, in humility, Jesus put God's plan of redemption and reconciliation first. In humility, Jesus looked at us and said, Lord, forgive them. In humility, Jesus overcame death so that we might have eternal life. And so humility should always be our stance. That should always be our stance. And what that means is when we look at these tough questions and when people come to us, it's instantly easy to say, oh, I've got the right answers. Let's fight. <laughs> yeah, anybody a debater? Anybody an arguer? Champion arguer? I'm missing, yeah, I'm missing Randy here. Randy Huerta. He loves to argue. He's great. I love Randy. I'm going to pick on him because he's not here. My wife, my wife and I have a policy at our grow group. No politics! Because <laughs> he'll start talking and I'll start talking and we just get into it and it's like, oh. But it's so easy to have, to have an idea, to have something and we just... We, I know I'm right and this, this, this. But you know what? That's not what Jesus did with his life. Humbly, he was the truth. And he lived the truth. He obeyed God. And he loved God. And he loved others. And that's what proved the truth of God. Not argument and debate. And so we need to remember, as we recognize and respond to that, that we need to respond in humility. And that's why we've been taking these questions, not just as a simple, hey, let's answer this question. Like the first question we had is, you know, uh, uh, could we trust the Bible? Great question. And we could very easily just answer that and say, hoorah, foam finger, we're number one. Let's answer that question. Go out and tell everybody how right we are. We don't want to just do that. And so what we looked at was the adverse of can we trust the Bible is, more importantly, are you living as you trust the Bible? Are you living like you trust it? Secondly, that last week, said, does the Bible contradict itself? Well, we said, no, it doesn't. But more importantly, are you truly confirming Jesus in your life or living a life of contradiction? And so today we want to take another yet humble look at another question, which again asks that ultimate purpose. And it's a really simple question, and yet it's, it's pretty profound today and a kind of a hot-button topic. <laughs> so the question is simple. Is, was I created or did I evolve? Was I created or did I evolve? So our, our take-home truth that we've just couched this in, that's the, what we want to answer today, is really simple. We were purposely created in love to live out an eternal purpose. We were created or purposely created in love to live out an eternal purpose. All right. So what I'd like to do is read out of the book of Romans. If you could all stand up for me. We're just going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. And believe it or not, this passage actually really addresses this situation, and we want to get to it. So, verse 20, Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires to their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, first, before we really get into this passage, because I, I believe Paul is really standing from a, a standpoint of truth, which is tough in this world today, because there's a lot of different truths out there. But, but we always start with the take-home truth. We just do. So what I would like to do is look at the alternative take-home truth that the world or, or the culture around us that we just grow up in and we've lived in, that your kids are going to school in, and that, you know, from, from the YMCA to the Stater Brothers or the Vons you go to, I mean, it's just there. It's the culture. It's the atmosphere. It's the, the air we are breathing. What is the take-home truth that we are getting from this world, from when we watch TV to whatever it might be? I was reminded of this recently, of this, of this alternative take-home truth, as my kids came home, and they're taking uh, uh, just biology in, in eighth grade. And their teacher was very adamant to say, basically, this is the way it is. This is it. Evolution. There's no other thing. And, and, and that, just, that just floored me, because I'm like, That's, I just don't see that. I don't see it. I've looked at a lot of the proofs. I've looked at a lot of the stuff. And yet that's what our culture is saying. See, if I were to put it simply, the opposite take-home truth that the world is saying is we evolved randomly in chaos. It's because that's what evolution ultimately says. We evolved randomly in chaos. First, it's important that we need to look at this as a standpoint of, we're, we're, let's break it down from micro to macro. Because I could sit here and I could, we could talk about evolution. I've got books that... If I were to take all my books on evolution and different things that I've researched, I mean, I could probably go about this high stacking them up. I mean, there's a lot of books out there, and that's just my library. So we don't want to sit here and, and, and make this into a very academic philosophical, because if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk about that with you. So I'm just going to cover some really simple things, because I've only got about 10 more minutes. <laughs> and so we just can't go into that detail. But again, we want to look at this in humility and also see what this means to you and me in our day-to-day. -day. So first and foremost... What I'd like to look at is the idea of macroevolution and microevolution. First of all, microevolution is kind of a given. And, and that's not necessarily opposite of the biblical narrative. Microevolution simply indicates that there is change, a change or a progression, involving different directions among various species that we can track historically. Horses will get bigger. Differences in, in those species will change a little bit to adapt. And it's in a micro scale. But what we're talking about today is the macro. See, macroevolution claims that all of life evolved from a single cell of which just always existed or somehow came spontaneously into being from out of nothing, something. Ex nihilo, as they would say in the Latin. Out of nothing, something. Now this one little pulsating single cell of life made up of amino acids and all the RNA and DNA somehow through chance or randomness 
mutated. First, a lower and simplistic form of life came about, and then from them came the more complex things, and we all emerged, as it were, from the slime and the ooze. Up and out of the primordial slime, we evolved into our present humanity. And this is why we want to say, first and foremost, that evolution, what it is about, is founded on random chaos. Again, if you're taking notes, that's just the idea. It's just random chaos. It's a random series. There's no actual design or purpose in it. In fact, some of the uh, uh, biologists, very much so today, say that evolution is one of the cruelest forms of, of how we came to be. It's just the cruelest way because it's so brutal and random. See, one big cosmic accident after another eventually became what we see today. This is why we have to honestly look at this take-home truth that is being purported or said or pushed or whatever you want to say to us today at all places at all times. See, were we created purposefully or are we a product of random chance and chaos? In other words, if I were to put it even simpler, um, am I worth it? Are we worth it? Or am I worthless? Or are we worthless? Do we have a purpose or is there truly no point? Are we worth it or are we worthless? See, evolution in general is by definition blind, mindless, purposeless, basically chaotic. And chaos is the opposite of creation. It's the opposite of life. See, I've never run into somebody who said, man, you know what I need in my life? A little more chaos. chaos. I just need that. If I'm really going to get things going, I need some chaos in my life. You know what my body needs today? Chaotic cells. Just chaos. Hold off on the tums. I got some chaos in my belly and it's happening. Right? Chaos. Some of you know people who are addicted to chaos. Okay? (laughs) I'm not talking about those people. I, I mean... CEOs don't get hired to come into a business and create chaos. One of the saddest... Well, let me just say this. um, Because I really feel we have to get here first. This is why we must challenge this idea of chaos and this take-home challenge, this take-home truth of evolution, is because ideas matter. Ideas matter. They do. Ideas matter. Because see, what I, how we act, I mean, even if we were to go to, just, if you don't believe me, let's go to Nepal and see what everybody's wearing. As opposed to what you're wearing here. Because what you are following right now is the idea of our culture which says what you are wearing is acceptable. As opposed to what they wear as acceptable. See, ideas matter. It, it involves every single part of what we do and how we think. And so, is that idea of, of randomness and chaos really coming into our life? Because ideas matter. And ideas form us and change us and help us to act or not act. Depending on the idea that is prominent and what we believe in our mind. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, World War II, you had Germany, which was considered one of the most Christian nations pre-World War II, 1930. In fact, um, in 1933, prior to the annexation of Austria and Germany, the Christian population in Germany was 67%. So 67% of the people, 67 out of 100 said, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, I believe in loving God and loving people. Protestants made up 33%. Or, I'm sorry, 67% were Protestant and 33% were Catholic. 
a, a census in May 1939, six years in the Nazi era, indicates 54% considered themselves Protestant, 40% Catholic, 3.5% self-identified as agnostic. And by the way, so 1.5% of the entire population of Germany considered themselves non-religious. And yet we all know that the same Christian people filled the ranks and practiced the biggest lie, believed it, and you know, uh, just practiced it in, in the, almost the wholesale genocide of a people group. What, what this was known as, by the way, is called the big lie theory. It's kind of interesting. If you've ever taken philosophy, I, I love logic and rhetoric and things like that. And one of the things out there is called the big lie theory. And Hitler really purported this. He really pushed this. And, and, and what's interesting about the big lie theory is that you make a claim that is so outrageous that people will assume that it cannot be a lie. Like we didn't land on the moon or the earth is flat. There are people out there that still believe the earth is flat. That, that, blows, my, that blows my mind. But, so you make this thing, you know, and then people accept it as truth. Then you strongly assert the lie. So you basically say, hey, this is true. This is true. Then you massage available data to prove the lie as being true. And then you reframe and interpret their vigorous denial as proof of guilt. Well, the only reason you don't believe is because you're a part of the lie. See, the Nazis used the big lie to turn long-standing anti-Semitism into mass murder, international Jewry, which it said started World War I. And the propaganda repeated over and over the conspiracy theory that Jews were the real powers in Britain and Russia and the U.S. And it went to state that the Jews had begun a war of extermination against Germany. And so Germany had a duty and a right to exterminate the rats, otherwise known as Jews. And they would show pictures. They're just rats. They're just rats. You exterminate rats, exterminate the Jews. It's no big deal. We all know they're trying to exterminate us, so we exterminate them. It's the big lie. And therefore, you had people who said, I love God and I love people, but I can kill a Jew. Because ideas matter. And when those ideas come into us and be a part of us, they affect us. And it's one thing to say it's another thing to live it. And here you have these people who are exterminating and annihilating. And the question we must humbly, again, here's that word, we need to be humble, is we need to ask ourselves, have I believed the message and the lies of the culture around me? And this is where we get back to the scripture here, because the world has always been opposite of God, and the Apostle Paul knew it then, and so he points it out to us, and goes back to the Creator. He says this in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... So you notice he just says since the creation. He doesn't say since the chaos, since the randomness. So he says creation of the world. God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, one of the things that he points us to is that creation reveals the power of God and the person of God. See, if evolution... Uh, reveals random chaos, creation reveals God in his power and his purpose, his person. Everything that is, Paul is saying, points to the power and person of God. See, we need to remember that creation is less about how and more about who. And so when I get into debates with people and they want to challenge me, I say, look, the bottom line is it's not always necessarily about how, it's about who. And you are going to miss it if you miss the Creator. This is why, as Albert Einstein, the more he looked into it, said, the more I study science, the more I believe in a God. 
Because the more I see creation, the more I see His presence, His power. This is where humility is super important, by the way. If all that is is revealing a creator, then we need to respond. See, that's that second part. Creation means we are responsible to our creator. If it points to a creator, then we're responsible to the creator. And, and you can understand to some extent why we don't want to be responsible. Sartre was amazing at this. I mean, you start looking at the philosophers and they, they have to deny God. Because as John Paul Sartre, the, the, the father of existentialism and, and modern day uh, existentialism and thinking, basically said there has to be an absence of an unviewed viewer. Because if there is an unviewed viewer who's constantly viewing me, then that means I have a responsibility to act. And I don't want that. Creation means there's a creator and we're responsible. And what Paul says is that people refuse to respond. That's why he says we're without excuse. See, the book of Genesis states that in the beginning God created everything and it was good, meaning it had a purpose and it had a plan. It was good. And then when he, he says he creates man and woman, he says it's very good. And, and he even says you are in control. You can manage this whole thing. You've got it. Here are the keys to the kingdom. Go for it. But ultimately, mankind failed and rejected the responsibility to God. And that's what Paul states in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and foolish. And their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged or traded the glory of the mortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. See, the biggest lie in all of history is that we're not responsible to God. That you just climbed out of the ooze and you're responsible to yourself. That you don't have a responsibility to the person of God. See, ideas matter. And we, re- and we refuse to be responsible to our Creator, so we became slaves to everything else. And this is, this is the sad thing, by the way. If there is no God and ultimate purpose beyond the limited time you are here, live it up. This is what Paul says. He says, if God is not real, he talks about this in Corinthians, he says, if God is not true, then just go out and party because there's really nothing to live for at all. Because either you accept that you are created and you have a purpose and you are worth it, or you just live a life of worthlessness. Paul says here that they exchanged or traded their creator with the created. See, Paul uses the idea of idols to illuminate this truth. And I know we don't trade God for some crazy snake figurine, right? <laughs> Those stupid people back then, right? How dumb. How dumb. You know, they'd have this little thing in their room. I'm sorry, am I making fun of the, our ancestors? I feel like I could do that. We, could, we can have chronological snobbery, don't you think? We can do that. Because they're so stupid. I mean, who would, who would worship some massive idol that you put your kid in or something? You know, and you've sacrificed your firstborn so you can have better crops and a better life. I mean, who would do that? Who would kill their firstborn just so they can be happy? Oh, wait. To trade God for something that will hopefully bring you success. 
To trade God for something that will hopefully bring you happiness. To trade God for something that will hopefully bring you pleasure and ease. To trade God for something that will hopefully bring you healthy life. Or trading Him for something that will hopefully bring you what you really want. See, when we trade our Creator, we are left struggling, trying to find our worth. We live in a tired, broken world that is constantly struggling, trying to find its worth. And maybe you're a little like me, where instead of going to the foot of the cross and seeing our Father, the, the, the one that gave His life, Jesus Christ, right there, we struggle to be worth it with everything else. See, instead of seeing our worth in our Creator, we look to the creation to find our worth, our family, Our friends, pleasure, success, addiction, relationships, marriage, sex, money, thrills. I mean, the list can go on and on of where we try to find our worth. And this is what Paul says. I just think the ancients were actually a little smarter because they put a face to it. Sometimes we just don't even know we're worshiping an idol. At least they knew it. You see, we were never meant to fight for our worth. We were created to find it in God. Let me say that one more time. We were never meant to fight for our worth. We were created to find it in God. Again, this is where humility comes in. Where are you struggling to create worth? And maybe not living a life of purpose and love that Jesus has called you to. Because this is where the rubber meets the road. It's easy to have a pat answer. It's a whole other thing to turn, your, turn your, the eyes of, of God on you and see where you're living randomness and trying to create worth with your job or with your life instead of finding that in Jesus. Maybe it's as simple as the grocery store. You have carefully counted your 13 items. You know what I'm talking about. And you're in that speedy checkout line where it clearly states no more than 15. Right? How many with me? And you're sitting there. I mean, you're so proud you're able to carry it in your hands. Right? You're holding on to it because you're like, I've got 13 and I know it. And the guy in front of you has got 33. And you know because you've counted three times. And you're on your fourth count because you're... You know what I'm saying? And they're on the phone. Really? Oh, I'm sorry. This is your world and we're just living in it. Right? Yeah. You go ahead with your 33 items, mister. I mean, who does this guy think he is? Doesn't he know that I am behind him and he is taking advantage of not only the rule but also me and my precious time? How dare he? It's my time. Who is going to put this bozo in his place? Because they are no longer a person but an obstacle to get through and an object of my anger. I mean, how dare they treat me this way? I am trying to find my worth. My worth is in this moment. And that's why I'm so offended. And bitterness creeps in. You know what I'm talking about. I've traded a loving God who has me here in this line for a purpose for my calendar and my schedule. See, maybe it's the couple that have found themselves married for a little while. I mean, they truly love their spouse, but let's be honest, the spark is a lot smaller than when it started. Schedules, kids, calendars, a host of other conflicts and circumstances have made life a little more difficult than they ever thought possible. And maybe one or both of them start to feel the pressure of, what about my happiness? 
What about what I want? I mean, I give and I give and when do I get what I want? And they're struggling to find their own worth in the marriage because the marriage is struggling so my worth is not there. And bitterness creeps in. Without even knowing it, the marriage, a gift from God which was meant to glorify Him and point to Him, the Creator, now it's being traded for something small and petty and me, me, me. How about that family that you have to deal with and they just drive you crazy? You know what I'm talking about. In fact, the more time has gone on, the more you've just pulled away and disengaged from all that craziness. After all, they bring you down and only cause you pain. Besides, you have heard that stress only causes harm to your body, and so, you know, I mean, it just makes sense you stay away. Right? I mean, you're just thinking about you. Come on now. You've got to be healthy. Because what's more important, you or them? I'm not my brother's keeper. And every time you're near them, you struggle with your self-worth. So you trade the God who created you with a purpose to love your difficult family for a small God who lets you disengage and be momentarily happy. See, it's as simple as looking at your life and ask, are you revealing the Creator who's given you a purpose? Or have you traded Him for the created? And struggling to find your self-worth. Are you living as if you were purposely created in love? Do me a favor. Let's pray. Let's, let's go before our Lord. I, it's, I, I bring up these little analogies and maybe sometimes they work. And sometimes they don't. I don't know your life. <laughs> I really don't know where you're at. But God does. And you do. Where are you struggling with your self-worth? Where do you think you really don't have purpose? That it's just some random chaos? Because I guarantee you, you go to the foot of the cross where our God, our Savior, Jesus, has His arms wide open He wants to show you your worth in something bigger than the junk of this world. Than the chaos swirling around us. Than that job you're struggling with. Than the family you're dealing with. Than the health issues. Than the lack of a relationship or the bad relationship. Whatever it might be. Where are you seeing chaos? Where do you need purpose? Where do you need Jesus? I just want to challenge you right now. I mean, we're going to go before the Lord. We're going to worship. I want you to take all your stuff. I mean, just imagine it as a big suitcase or a big rock or a big boulder, all this junk that's just causing you this pain, causing you this random chaos in your life, and just set it right at the foot of the cross. Maybe you're like me, you've got to close your eyes, you've got to use your imagination. It's okay, God gave you one for a purpose. I want you to take that stuff and I want you to set it there at His feet. And I want you to declare His love in your life because you're worth it.
You're worth it. He died for you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. Do you acknowledge it? Are you living it? Lord, we come before you and we thank you. We just want to take this time as an act of worship. Some of us might need to get on our knees. Some of us might need to stand up. Some of us might need to go outside and just sit under a tree. But we've got to deal with you, the Creator. We've been struggling with the chaos and creating our own worth. We need to give it to you, the one that is worthy. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you're good.